All right, Jesse, the conclusion of last week's unlucky widow case was a shocker. What's the story this week? When a series of violent threats and mysterious assaults culminate in the murder of Kay Whedon's mother, police have to question why all of the people in Kay's life seem to be in danger. Is the culprit someone close to Kay? Or could it even be Kay herself? I'm Annie Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about surprising past, unbelievable presence, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support and all the goodies that you get. Speaking of Patreon, as always, we are so excited to welcome a bunch of new patrons. We want to shout out and give a huge thanks to Nen A, Jen PB, and Dr. Robin B, Lauren P, Ama W, and Janya V. Carly G, Madeline M, and Lori R. And finally, Mary CL and DDM. Okay, Andy, you know I love to dive right in, but there is one special little note about this week. Um, this show comes out on Wednesday as usual, and Friday will mark our two-year anniversary. Yay! So cute. I know. I cannot believe that it's been two years already. Time really does fly when you're having a good time, huh? It does. It also flies when you have kids and you pulled me into that one with you two years ago as well. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I pulled you into two major life projects. Yes. <laughs> two years ago. But who ago better to do time. them with? <laughs> Precisely. Yes, and we're not going to make a big deal about it. We might like do an Instagram post or something. Instead, we will have some really big announcements coming up in the weeks to come mm -hmm. about adding maybe some content to your weekly schedule. But still, a very, very big thank you to everyone else we've pulled on this journey with us, all of you guys, because Without you, our lovers, our listeners, we would not have a show. Totally, Jesse. That's amazing. Yes. So thanks again to all of you, and we'll have some news for you soon. December 9th, 1993 was the worst day of Kay Whedon's life. Capping off nearly a year of mysterious harassment, with a heartbreaking and horrifying loss no person should have to endure. The day began as normally as possible as she reported to her job as an English and drama teacher at West Rowan High School in Rowan County, North Carolina. An hour into her day, however, her mother's boss appeared with some concerning news. He told her that her mother, Catherine, had missed work and they were unable to reach her. For any other employee, perhaps it wouldn't have been so noteworthy. 
But Catherine Miller was 77 years old. She had worked for the company for over 40 years, and she had never been so much as five minutes late. Whoa, that's so impressive. So impressive. And that's why her boss immediately knew something was up because there's no way she would no call, no show ever. Kay felt a tight knot of dread in her stomach as her mother's boss explained that he had already called the sheriff's department and the two rushed to Catherine's modest ranch house where the authorities waited. So at that point, they asked her if she had a key to her mother's house. She did not have it on her person, but she had it in her own house that was a few blocks away. So the deputy drove her home so she could get her mother's spare key. But the whole time, she is freaking out. Like, maybe they should have just broken down the door. Like, why are they driving me to go get the key? And when she gets back to her house, she grabs the key and she makes a quick phone call to her ex fiance because he's a detective with the police as well. So she wants him to come to the site as well to support her. And if, God forbid, anything had happened, he can help better walk her through the steps of what is next and be there for her. Yeah, it's always nice having someone you know around in a situation like that. Yeah, and especially somebody who's in the know. So she gives him a quick call. She grabs the key. She goes back to her mother Catherine's house and she is shaking while she's trying to get this key in the lock. And the first thing that she noticed when she was doing this was that the storm door was always locked. Her mother was very, very, very into security. She had recently lost her husband of over 20 years and she didn't like being alone. There's a lot of stuff that's going on in Kay's life that's a little scary. And so she had a security system. She always kept her door locked when she was home, when she was sleeping, like literally as soon as she got home, she locked it. Yeah. So the fact that the storm door is unlocked is concerning. And then Kay cannot get the key to turn in the lock. And she realizes that in her panic, she has grabbed her own spare key. Oh, of course. I mean, she is freaking out and her intuition is screaming that something is very wrong with her mother. So at this point, she is breaking down and she's like, just break the door down. I don't care. Like, I'm not going to make you guys pay for it. Just get in that house right now. So one of the deputies, of course, makes her stand away from the door. They're able to force it open. And as soon as the responding deputy peeks his head in, he is met by a stench of burned beans and drying blood. So they make sure that Kay is not within eyesight of this scene. And the authorities entered the home where they discovered Catherine Miller slumped half sitting and half lying in front of the refrigerator in a crimson pool of thick gelatinous blood. She had been shot twice in the head execution style. What? And this is a 77-year-old grandmother, salt of the earth, accountant at a refrigeration company. What purpose could there be for anyone to want to execute her? That's what Kay kind of thought of when she was able to think clearly again after the shock had passed a little bit was like, why would anyone want to kill her mother? Catherine Miller looked like the epitome of a grandmother. She had these beautiful 
thick white curls. She looked like warm and safe and cozy. There's almost like a Mrs. Claus quality to her, like that you'd feel safe with her. It just doesn't make any sense. She was a good church-going woman. She was married to two men. She was widowed twice, unfortunately. Both of her husbands she was married to for over 20 years. She had been, above anything else, loyal and loving her entire life. So Kay told the police that she had endured some very traumatic events of the last year. She had broken off with the fiancé, the guy who was with the police force, Her teenage son had been harassed via phone and letter. Her car and garage had been vandalized. People had spray-painted things on her home. Then the worst thing was that a twenty-two bullet was shot through her son's wall. Um, These are not normal things. And there was some element of the police being like, oh, this must be some teenage hijinks, especially because a lot of these things were targeting her teenage son. But now her mother is dead, clearly murdered. So the police are like, there's a lot going on here and we have to get to the bottom of it clearly. So they take her in when she's recovered a little bit to interview her. And the detective said at that point, okay, look, It's like stuff's happening to you, you, your mother, your son, your ex-fiance is getting some harassing messages as well. You are the center of all of this. So is there anything you want to tell us? And at that point, she is like, are you kidding me? I loved my mother more than anything else in this world other than my son. There's no way I would have done this. There's no way I would do this to myself. I wouldn't put myself and my son through this like, you're crazy. And they were like, you know what? Then we got to figure out who else would have any motivation to do these to just the people in your life. Yeah. Yes. Well, soon they would discover that this case would turn up not just one homicide, but three. What? Yep. Catherine Miller was just the beginning. Or... Really, they'd come to find out the last in a line of three homicides, one that happened in a foreign country years before. They would also discover startling obsessions, stalking, cruelty, and a gross abuse of power. The book I used primarily for research was actually written by the lead detective on the case, Detective Paula May. It's called First Degree Rage, The True Story of the Assassin and Obsession and Murder, as well as a good old, old school episode of Forensic Files from Season 10, Episode 41 called To the Victor. And you can find that on Peacock. Hopefully I did not see that. You probably have, but it was probably in a hotel. (laughs) At some point, and you weren't maybe paying in, in back, yeah. as background while I was working. Yeah, it was more of the background situation, I'm hoping at least, so you don't remember this one. There is a trigger warning. There's actually a couple, and I'll try to tell you guys specifically when we get to that section, there will be some mentions of child abuse, stalking, and domestic abuse. So let's begin at the heart of this maelstrom, K. Kay was born in the mid-50s in Rowan County, North Carolina. Her mother, Catherine, worked in accounting for a refrigeration company for over 40 years, and her father passed away when Kay was only 20 years old. Kay was very inspired by her mother's life, who instilled good values in her as well as a stellar work ethic. 
After high school graduation, Kay attended Western Carolina University, where she studied to become a teacher and met and married husband Matthew Whedon. The couple moved to Virginia, where Kay began teaching and then gave birth to the couple's only child, a son named Jason, in 1977. After 13 years of marriage, Kay and Matthew decided to divorce. It seemed that the marriage had been pretty turbulent for a number of years, and by the time everything was truly finalized, Kay was very, very happy to move back to Salisbury, North Carolina, which was her hometown and the place where her mother Catherine still lived. So it was one of those things where there was a dual purpose to this. I think that it was a comfortable and safe setting for her, but also Catherine could help raise her son. Salisbury turned out to be the perfect home for both mother and son. Kay found a job teaching English and drama, while Jason joined the soccer team and quickly became one of the most popular students at school. Life was getting on track for Kay, and with that came a little bit of romance. Of course. She met Elsie Underwood, a police officer in 1990, and the two very quickly hit it off. Elsie was chivalrous, neat, very attentive, and extremely romantic. After the misery of her last couple years of marriage, a grueling divorce, and a couple failed attempts at dating, the attention and romantic gestures were very well received. I can imagine dating after a horrible divorce would just be like, you'd have to find your footing again. Like there's no way you could just jump right into it being a perfect match with someone. No, and like expectations are all over the place. You don't even know what you want most of the time. You're like, am I really looking for something serious or am I looking for a rebound? And then, you know, what do you do if you're not a rebound type of person? Yeah, it's there's a lot flying around. There's a lot. And she has a teenage son to consider. As well, at this point in 1990, Jason would have been 13 years old. So there's a lot of responsibility involved in this. And Elsie did seem great. I mean, he was respectful. He was all in. He was romantic. And she thought that she had had like a couple tries at dating that really like failed before they really took off. And she was like, maybe that's enough. Maybe this this is the one. Maybe I found the guy that I'm going to marry. He was tall, dark, and attractive in an unconventional way. He's not like, you know, GQ hot, but th- there was a an appeal about him. But soon Kay started noticing things about Elsie that she didn't entirely love. He had some strange compulsions, one of which was he was obsessively neat. At first, she's like, this is great. You know, bachelors are usually a little messy. And that was not him. And she was always impressed at how clean his car and home was. But then he started doing stuff like vacuuming the footsteps in the carpet on their way out the door. So he'd be like, get behind me and you walk out the door and I'm I'm going to vacuum our steps until we reach the door. Hmm. And he also was a smoker and he would clean out his ashtray like the moment he used a cigarette. And there was just a lot of things that like people didn't normally do. So she's like, this seems like overkill. And it took a lot of their focus away from the relationship. But even more than that, the romantic and attentive behavior was tinged with a lot of control and jealousy issues. Okay. 
he would like preface it by saying like, I just love you so much. I want to be with you all the time. But it seemed constant. He always wanted to be with her. He always wanted to know where she was going, who she was with. And he tried to like position it in a romantic way, but it was controlling. And she knew that he had a very traumatic past. He claimed that his ex-wife had cheated on him. But even more than that, his parents had dumped him in an orphanage when he was a very young child. So it was so obvious that he had trust and abandonment issues that she decided to be patient. Okay. But soon it became untenable. Kay later told author and detective Paula May, If things didn't go Elsie's way, he became a different person and not for the better. He was very possessive. He resented my friends and my son. He always complained that he was second best. I told him he had no reason to feel that way, no reason to feel threatened by my son, my friends, or anyone else, but it did no good. I encouraged him to go out and be with his own friends, but he'd just say that all he wanted to do was be with me. What Elsie really wanted was for Kay to want to be with him and him alone all of the time, which is too much for anyone or any relationship. If you love me, you should feel the same way, he would tell Kay. But I don't have to be with you all of the time, she told him. And that doesn't mean I don't care about you. It's just that everyone needs their own space sometimes. In any healthy relationship ever. Yeah, in every (laughs) healthy relationship. You should not be, like, unless you are a small child, then you should be with your parent all the time. But other than that, like... You should not be with your best friend, your husband, your adult children, like 24-7 all the time. That's not a healthy relationship. But he has abandonment issues from his parents, so... Exactly. She said that the only times that she would get scared was when she would try to gently bring these things up and he would literally like scream in her face like a relationship isn't supposed to be like this. A relationship isn't supposed to be being apart. And she would be like... Okay, I get that you're hurt, but you'd have no right to yell at me about anything. He also, and and this could have also been his childhood trauma, sometimes responded to things in a very bizarrely childish fashion. One example that Kay brought up was that they were with her mother, Catherine, at some point. And Catherine was very nice to Elsie, but she treated him almost like a child, like her own child, like a son-in-law. And he was doing something that she didn't like. And she kind of like chided him like very gently. And at that point, Elsie put his fingers in his ear and basically did the like, la, 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 I'm not listening thing. And this is a grown man. Yeah. Oh, poor guy. Yeah. He's just has got a lot going on. But there was like some red flags, especially... To Catherine, who had lived through this divorce with her daughter that was so hard on her that she didn't want her to make another bad choice. And it was clear that Elsie very much wanted to marry Kay. So she would, she still warmly welcomed Elsie and she treated him exactly like she would treat anyone else. But she did privately tell Kay, you know, maybe you just keep dating. Maybe we don't stop here. Maybe you just get back on the freeway for a little while. Yeah, maybe you (laughs) hit the next rest stop and decide to stay there. Yeah, so despite these warnings from her mother, though, when Elsie got down on one knee to propose at a weekend getaway in the mountains in 1992, so two years after they started dating, Kay enthusiastically accepted the ruby and diamond ring. 
she said that she was aware that his issues were still a really big deal, but he had promised to go through therapy if she said yes. And both he and she thought that once he had this commitment, once they were engaged, once they were married, once he was in therapy, that they'd be able to tackle his issues together. And maybe he would actually feel something like security. Sometimes that does that. Sometimes the marriage does that for people. It, maybe they just need that piece yeah. of paper, that ring, realization, whatever. that ring, that is, it's that name change, whatever it is that makes them feel like, oh, this is permanent. I am not going to be tossed aside. I can feel secure. Yes. And so that's what they both hope for. So I think that probably at this point, it's as good a time as any to go back and talk about what happened to Elsie in his childhood? And this is where we get into the trigger warnings for child abuse and maybe why he's acted the way he's acted in the past. So Lamont Claxton Underwood was born on September 10th, 1951 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. His parents, Ethel and Floyd, had three children total. There was an older brother named Richard, and then Elsie was the middle one with a little sister named Margot. Cute names. They're really cute, but unfortunately, maybe giving their kids cute names was the last good thing that these parents did because they were trash parents. One of Richard's most prominent memories of his family was a Christmas Eve that his parents locked him in the barn with his siblings because they were drinking and fighting. Oh, God. Outdoor barn? It sounded like it was an outdoor one. Oh, God, Jesse. And Margot was barely like over a year at that point. I think she was a very little toddler, probably close to the age of our kids right now. And of course, didn't understand why they were locked in a barn. And you could still hear the parents screaming and yelling at each other. Yes, it's not even like it does anything. It doesn't like protect them from that. No. So they like she literally put her hands over her ears and was crying. And Richard remembered that they were finally let out. And the next morning there was no presence. There was no explanation. There was no Merry Christmas. They just had no idea why Santa skipped their house. Oh, God, that's like devastating. It's devastating. It's just And that's like only the beginning of what these kids went through. The marriage was riddled with infidelity, substance abuse, and physical abuse. Ethel eventually left the family for another man, just left her kids with her husband. And Floyd, I guess, half-heartedly for a little while tried to take care of his children, but eventually decided he couldn't do it or he was not going to do it. So he ended up leaving Richard, the oldest, with his mother. And Richard was raised by his grandmother and his aunt. And Elsie and Margot were given to his brother, George. So that's their Uncle George. And, and later on, author and detective Paula May would interview George about this. And he said that he had kids himself, so he could only take the two youngest ones, which is why Richard went with his grandmother. And Richard did very well in life. It turns out that his grandmother was very nurturing and ended up raising him in a way where he was able to be emotionally healed and successful. But sadly, the the same cannot be said for Elsie. And Margot ended up fine, but I don't know how she kind of avoided the same amount of psychic trauma because she went through it 
too. George was a real piece of work. He and his wife had a son about the same age as Elsie. And that child was given the best of the best, never punished, like would be get a pile of presents when Elsie got nothing. And the worst part was that Elsie was beat very regularly and forced to endure really humiliating punishments. One such punishment that started when he was like six years old was that George would make him wear a dress and suck on a pacifier while sweeping the front porch in front of his friends and peers and like neighborhood kids that were the same age. Oh my God, that's horrible. The craziest thing about this is that George talks to the detective later on and is like, yeah, here's these funny things I did to this kid. Like, Yeah, just no idea. No idea that he's talking about horrific emotional and physical abuse. He's just like, yeah, you know, that kid was pretty much screwed from the beginning. Like, you know, he came from bad stock. His parents had already effed him up. So he came in here and he was already like a lost cause. So, you know, sometimes I had to keep him in line. So, you know, I do this dress thing. And then I'd also sometimes I put him in a sack and hang him in the air. What? Yeah, like he would say, if you don't like stop that, I'm going to throw you in a sack and and the kid would, you know, keep doing whatever he was doing. And then he'd literally put him in a sack and like hang him on a hook. And so he'd be like suspended in the air in a sack as a small child. Oh my God, that's so horrible. Yeah, Margot said she went through it to, to a lesser extent. Elsie always got the worst of it, but she remembered like for no reason, things like George would make them stand on one leg and if they fell, he would beat them. So this was just some sadistic. Straight child abuse. <laughs> yeah, being like, I guess like he's trying to wear the cloak of this was discipline. Yeah, no, you're just a piece of shit. Yeah. Five years later, he ended up placing both Margot and Elsie in a orphanage. And he said this was because Elsie had tried to set a fire in the attic of his home. We don't we don't know whether that's true or not. So he placed them at the children's home, an orphanage in Winston. When the kids had gone to him, they were five and three. That's how old they were when they were enduring this abuse. And then they were with him for five years. So that's like, you know, they're like 10 and eight at this point, I think. <sighs> and even though... George had horrifically abused Elsie. He clung to him. Apparently, when he was going to place him at the orphanage, Elsie cried. He begged. He said, I'm so sorry. I know I've been bad. I know I've been bad. I'll never be bad again. Please don't make me go away. And George didn't give a shit. So they went to the orphanage. And now Elsie has been abandoned by both parents and by his aunt and uncle. And I'm sure there was also a feeling of anger towards his grandmother who took Richard in, but did not take him and Margot in. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So this all tracks as to why he would have such an, a very strong reaction to anything that he perceives as abandonment. So Elsie eventually did bond with a young woman named Barbara who became essentially a pseudo mother figures. Now, this was strange a little bit because Barbara was only eight years older than Elsie. 
So some people thought that their relationship was a little weird, but it actually was, according to Barbara, very mother-son, and that she would have adopted him herself had they been able to locate Elsie's parents to get them to sign away their parental rights. So he finally met this woman, and, and he met her because her husband and she ran the farm at the orphanage. There was like a farm program where they made their own food. And so he was part of that. And Barbara was like such a great mother figure for him. But despite Barbara's influence, Elsie's compulsion for control and his jealous behavior in romantic relationships began as early as his teenage years when he landed in legal trouble for stalking objects of his affection. By the time Elsie met Kay, he had been estranged from his family for decades, but his brother also said that as a young man, Elsie was drawn to becoming a police officer, not in an effort to aid the community, but in an effort to control and intimidate others. He had been powerless his whole life, and this was the only way he could imagine that he could garner that power. Well, Elsie eventually achieved the goal of becoming a police officer in 1975 when he was 24 years old. By that time, he already had two failed marriages under his belt. He had married both women when they were only teenagers and in college. And the couples also had only known each other for a matter of months. So it seemed like he was young. They were young. It moved way, way, way too fast. And this is also a habit of Elsie's, which is that clinging. He gets in and he immediately wants to have a serious relationship, a committed relationship. And the women that he would get involved with would be kind of swept away by the romanticism. And then they wouldn't realize until it was too late what kind of guy they actually married. Which is another reason why like romantic comedies and stuff do us a disservice by telling us like, marry somebody you hardly know. It's going to be fine. It's romantic. Get to know your person. I mean, I married a date after five months, but I felt like we talked like enough for at least like two years before that. (laughs) But yeah, it's nothing like our relationships because he would move in fast. The women were very young. And unfortunately, all of his ex-girlfriends and ex-wives would later report a pattern of horrific treatment, including insane jealousy, stalking. He would break into their homes. He would illegally copy their keys. So they would discover that he had a key to their house that they never gave him. Yeah. I mean, the the, the difference here with you as a couple and him and what he's doing with his partners is it's all a facade at the beginning, the communication and the passion and the chivalry. Like it's all to convince these girls to give in to him. Yeah. But the craziest thing is that I think he also convinced himself. Yeah. He convinced himself that what he was doing was romantic. And when they started to pull away, realizing that it wasn't romantic, it was controlling he would double down. And in his mind, it's, why are you ruining this relationship? We were having a great time. And then all of a sudden you want space and all of a sudden you want to go out with your girlfriends a couple nights a week. Like, why Well, why can't I come? You know, and so he is not well mentally. And so I think he really convinced himself of this story that they're the ones ruining their relationship and he doesn't know why. 
So he would do all, like when they tried to leave him, he would break back into their house. He would show up where they were. In one case, he got into a fight with a girlfriend or I think an ex-girlfriend at that point. They were both drinking and she called the police because she was scared because he was being physically abusive with her. Now, Elsie was already on the police force at this point. And so the next day he brought her the, because she was saying, you were wrong. I called the police and they were on my side because you were physically abusing me and you need to stay away from me. And he's like, oh, really? Because that's not what the police report says. And he showed up and he gave her a police report that essentially said that she was drunk and that she was disorderly and that Elsie hadn't been doing anything and that they need to like place her on probation. And she was like, this is so effed up. This is so not true. Like, I'm going to go straight to the chief. And good on her. She and her father went to the police chief and presented the report. And they said, this is absolutely unacceptable because I was the one being victimized. And if you're doing this, you're protecting one of your own. And the police chief looked at it and he's like, this isn't a real report. Elsie made this whole thing up. This was never filed. This is not a legit official police report. And did he get fired? And he got fired. Okay, good. In this situation, good. But you'll see, we're going to keep talking about this. And there is some stuff he gets away with that you're like, ah, okay. Really? I'm sure there's stuff. I thought you were going to say that he didn't get fired. So No, in that situation, thank goodness he did get fired. And there was another ex-girlfriend named Patty who spoke to author Paula May And she reported that she felt like very successfully she got out of the relationship. And it was weirdly weeks after she got out of the relationship that things with Elsie took a terrible turn. She said that weeks after she went on a date with another man and when she came home, Elsie was lying in wait. Now, this is a domestic abuse slash just straight up assault trigger warning here. And then he attacked her and he was calling her slurs like the S word and the W word. And at What's that the point, W word? Whore. I just hate slut and whore so much. I hate it. I hate it. I hate I legit it. did not know. I thought, I thought you were going to say like wench. Yeah. He did not say it nicely or cutely at all. He was saying it rather terrifyingly, and he smashed a potted plant over her head. Nah. Yep. And then he got her down on the ground, and she said that he was choking her, and she was in and out of consciousness at that point. And when she was, like, kind of in it, she saw that he had taken his thirty-eight revolver, and he was pointing it between her eyes and cursing her and telling her that he was going to kill her. And after several more beatings, he left her and he said, I'm on duty all night and I'm with somebody else. I'm with a partner. And if I hear on the radio that you went to the police, that you called in a report, that you asked anyone to come to your house, I will come back and I will finish the job. I will kill you and I will get away with it. So scary. So what did she do? She was too terrified to report the assault. I mean, he is a police officer and he did say he was going to kill her and she believed him. He's scary as hell. So she went to the hospital the next day and she was treated for black eyes, for burst blood vessels in her eyes, a concussion and several contusions all over her body. Now, eventually Patty's 
dad made her go to the police and go like to the chief, like the previous pair, which also this is so effed up that these women have to go with their fathers when they're grown adults to get anything done or be taken seriously at all. But that's the case. And I mean, I'd like to say not anymore, but maybe even still today. And in that case, you would think something would have happened to him, but he only got a brief suspension. That's disgusting. Well, threatening women with his service revolver became a pattern, as well as spray painting derogatory messages on exes' houses, on sidewalks in front of their house. And even in, I think it was Patty and another woman named Linda's case, they were both churchgoers. And so he went to their church and wrote their full name out, like, so-and-so is a whore like on their church where they went. <sighs> He's gross. Yeah. And there's like, you know, you start the story and you're like, wow, this child suffered so greatly. But that doesn't give you the right to treat people like this. You just need to go to therapy. Lots and lots yeah. of therapy. Which is totally yeah. fine. And as a society, supported. And if you're with and surround yourself with the right people, they should support it as well. Bottom line. Yeah, and we're getting into the 90s now. I mean, it was a totally different era, but therapy was becoming more prevalent. It wasn't such a, a crazy thing that you do when you're a mentally ill person. It's something that everyone could use. Unfortunately, his violent behavior was not limited to romantic partners, and several ex-colleagues also reported that he used excessive force while apprehending suspects. Which was not great because it seemed also pretty clear that this guy was a racist. So I can't even imagine how especially black people that he arrested were treated unfairly because this guy is just altogether not a good guy. In January of 1982, he met and married his third wife, Marsha, after only knowing her for about four months. Though the marriage lasted nearly a decade, it, too, was riddled with abuse and infidelity. L.C. was the one who cheated on Marsha, yet when they finally broke up, he told everyone who would listen that Marsha had been the one sleeping around and cheating on him. And he even told people this bullshit story about how he had caught her cheating with her boss in a hotel room and he had ripped the guy out of the hotel room and like beat him within an inch of his life. And that was like a positive story he was telling, but that it wasn't true. That hadn't happened. Marsha and Elsie finalized their divorce in 1992, which you'll remember is the same year that Kay got engaged to Elsie after two years of dating. Now, in 1990, and I think part of 1991, Elsie had still been very officially married to Marsha, and Kay had been under the impression that they were already divorced. And this also makes sense because you're thinking, Elsie has a pattern of marrying people very quickly. Why did it take him two years with Kay? Well, it took him two years because he was still legally married. We've seen that before. We have. We have. We have. That is the only thing that pumps the brakes is that they're still legally married to the last person they married too soon. It takes time, guys. Yeah. Those papers take time. Well, the engagement between Elsie and Kay was short-lived in any case because 
he would not or could not stop his controlling and obsessive behavior. And Kay decided to end the relationship with the encouragement of her son and mother. But it wasn't for good, unfortunately, because he just kept managing to wheedle his way back into her heart. And they decided to give it another shot in like the late fall of 1992 against everyone's advice. And at that Thanksgiving, there was an incident where she couldn't find him. He was supposed to be going over to her mother's house for Thanksgiving. And instead she found him in a room like suicidal and she was scared and Jason was with her. And then Elsie pointed a gun at her son's head and said he was going to kill her son. And she was like, all right, you know what? We're, we're done here. Like we're done. I think there was one incident on Thanksgiving and then there was another incident with Jason in early 1993. But at that point it was like, you cannot point a gun at my child's head and think that we're going to continue this relationship. (laughs) Yeah, no. So that was, like I said, early 93. And Kay and Jason were pretty, pretty done with Elsie. But shortly after the breakup, they began to receive threatening phone calls and typed letters. And they were all addressed to Jason. And they implied that he was involved in drug dealing and that he was going to be killed because he owed someone money and that he needed to repay it or they were going to murder him and potentially his mother. Okay. This could not have been farther from the truth. He was a good kid. He went to school. Him and Kay had welcomed a exchange student who was from Denmark named Mikkel at that point too. And it was like him and his best buddy, the exchange student, like playing soccer and just being a good kid. He has no idea where these allegations that he's involved in drug dealing and bad men who want to kill him are coming from. He's like in the cartel. Yeah, that's exactly what it's it's suggesting. And it's ridiculous. On March 16th, Kay found her car spray painted with expletives. And the very next day, somebody had spray painted, Jason is a gay slur here. I'm not going to say that word either. Oh, my God. Yes. So she went to the police and she was scared at this point. And they said, well, it just seems like it's like teenager shit. Like everything is like it's just a threatening phone call about Jason. They targeted Jason and what they said on your garage door. It seems like he has made some enemies at school. It's probably a teenage thing. And she's like, no, he's so popular. Nobody hates him. Nobody would do he. Jason couldn't think of one kid that would do this sort of thing to him. Yeah, so the whole police station is gaslighting her. Yes, and at that point, she's, like, really scared. So she turns to LC and she said, look, I'm being harassed and your department isn't doing anything about it. And he's like, let me handle it. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to keep you protected. I've got this. I'm going to start watching your house 24-7. Whenever, like, I'm on patrol, I'll come by. When I'm not, I'll watch your house so you can sleep safely and you know that you're okay. And at that point, LC allegedly started receiving threatening letters and phone calls as well. Oh, did he? He's, yes. He said did that he, he get them from himself? Because I'm confused. Well, we don't know that yet, Andrea. We don't know what's going on here. There's a mysterious attacker. Oh, too good. So 
they're typewritten letters. And so he says he's getting these letters too. And they're saying like, you can't protect him. Like we know you're the mother's boyfriend and you're not going to be able to protect him or save him or anything like that. When on March 20th, a bullet was fired into Jason's room from outside the house. At that point, Elsie claimed that he too had been the victim of a drive-by shooting. That's such a coincidence. Now, the really screwed up thing about this bullet going into his bedroom, that very morning, Kay had gotten a waterbed for Jason, which was a lot bigger than his previous bed. And so they had to rearrange his entire room to make this waterbed fit. Okay. And where the bullet came into his home was where his head would have been if he was sleeping in his bed in the old arrangement. And he was sleeping in the room when it happened? Yeah. And did Elsie know that they rearranged the room? No. So he was trying to kill him. 100%, I believe yeah. he would have. Yes. yes. It wasn't just scaring them. I think he wanted to take people away from Kay, so she was left alone and needed him. At that point, Kay is like, this is more than Elsie can handle. My son is being shot at. And Elsie was like, look, I've got this handled. You do not need to go back to the police. They're not going to do anything anyway. And she's like, screw that. I'm going to the police. So despite his objections, she did go to the police and she's like, here are all of the letters. Here's the bullet that went through my home. Also, here's an answering machine recording that she had managed to capture of one of the threatening phone calls. So she managed to like hit record. So she's like, this is everything. And I'm terrified. Like, you need to do something now. And to her great relief, they were like, oh, we're going to take this very seriously. These are very, very serious offenses. Like, yes, the spray painting could have just been teenage hijinks. But what you're describing now is a campaign of terror and harassment and attempted murder. Now, what she didn't know was that the police already suspected Elsie. And did they not tell her that because they needed to further their investigation? Because I feel like that's a huge risk to continue letting her be bait. Yeah. Well, they were already kind of investigating it even before she came in with like all of this stuff because they were keeping an eye out on it ever since her first initial reaction. They just didn't want to tip Elsie off to the fact that they were investigating him. Okay. But the force had awareness of some of the previous domestic abuse allegations and stalking allegations about him because he had obviously been penalized by other forces and, and had come over from different departments. So they knew something was up. And so at this time, LC was a police officer, but he was also like a safety officer. So he worked at a school as well. And at that school, he had a typewriter. So this is on the forensic files that they talk about it. They took his typewriter and they were able to forensically prove that all of the letters had come from that typewriter. Unbelievable. So they bring this evidence to Kay and they're like, you need to get a restraining order. Like, we'll definitely, you know, make sure that that happens because this is LC. He's the one doing it. He's the one attacking you and your son and threatening you. And we have proof because we have proof that the letters all came from this typewriter. And Kay was totally floored. She had no idea. She really was under the impression that 
Elsie was doing the things that he did because he loved her so much and because he was a screwed up kid, you know, but she had no idea that he was actually going to hurt her and her family this way until this moment. And to be honest, she didn't even quite believe it because she was still leaning on Elsie quite a bit. They had started seeing each other again. And when he told her that the typewriter thing was bullshit and that they were just trying to keep them apart and frame him, it wasn't that she believed him. It was more that she was so confused. And they had already put him in on administrative leave because he refused to take a polygraph to clear himself. Okay. And he went to her, he went to Kay and he appealed to her. He said, look, I'm on administrative leave and I know that polygraphs are like pseudoscience and I could be nervous and they could say I did a thing, so I'm not going to take it, but you have to withdraw your complaint. You have to say that you're not concerned anymore about the harassment or I'm going to lose my job. And this is the only thing I have going for me right now. And she did it. She withdrew the complaint. Oh, no. I mean, there's so many factors going into this and how scared she is and how confused she is and just things that we can't understand even a little bit. So I definitely wince right along with all of you guys at home, along with Andy, But we all have to understand and take it with a grain of salt because we can't possibly understand what she's actually going through at this moment. So they're dating again at this point and the harassment magically stops once he gets what he wants that they're together. But immediately the jealous and controlling behavior starts all over again. Mikkel and Jason were on a soccer team and he would want to come to every soccer team. He wanted to be involved in like the coaching, like a dad. He wanted to go over to dinner every night and eventually move back in with the family. And she's like, this is much too much. We are not in a good place. We haven't been. We have repeatedly broken up. Like we kind of just stress got back together and I don't want you in my life in that capacity. You're you're pushing too much. So basically at that point, Catherine and Jason very much encouraged Kay, like, you have to end this for good once and for all. Yeah, like actually end it. <laughs> and she did. This time she did. It was, she was Dunsville. She said it very, very plainly to Elsie. There was no mincing of words. This was over. And as you can imagine, he didn't take it too well. So he started going to Kay with his own sob stories. He told her that his mother was dying of cancer. Now, it doesn't matter which mother this was, the one he considered his adoptive mother or his biological mother, because neither woman had cancer. The other really screwed up thing he told her was the dog that they had adopted together, a puppy named Misty, who was an Australian shepherd, died. He called Kay and he said, Misty's dead. And he said that he doesn't know what happened, but he put her in her crate every night and she had some toys or some food in the crate with her. And he believed that she choked on something and had died. When he woke up, she was passed away. 
this motherfucker killed the dog. That is heavily implied. And there is another witness, a friend of his, who said that he was cruel to the dog. He would often put the dog in the crate and kick it and threaten the dog because he said it was part of her. It was part of Kay because she had helped him pick it out or they had adopted it together. Oh, my God. Later on, too, it would come to light. Like, he told Kay, like, I took it to the vet. They did everything they could. Misty couldn't be saved. And it would come to light. He never went to the vet. Yes, he was just lying. He was just lying. We don't know what he did with the dog after he likely killed it. So he's trying to say, our dog died. Like, let's, let's like, talk about it. Let's get together. Or, oh, I really need you because my mom has cancer. And that's not working. She's like, she was, of course, upset about the dog, but she's like, still, we're broken up. And I'm very sorry about these things happening in your life, but that doesn't mean that we're going to get back together. Yeah. So he started just straight up stalking Kay. He is driving by her house. He is calling her at work. He's just showing up at places where she's at. She's trying to get her life back together. She's trying to start dating again. There was an incident at a restaurant where she was on a date with another person. And he came into the restaurant, threatened to kill the guy, and then took a full glass of iced tea and poured it on Kay's lap. Rude. Yeah. And so the manager called the police because he wouldn't leave the restaurant. They arrested him. And he was once again suspended or placed on some sort of administrative leave. Crazy. So after that, Elsie was on super thin ice. He was not allowed to be anywhere near Kay or contact her, Jason, or anything. And it seems like he might have actually taken this seriously for once in his life because he was worried about his career. Because Elsie didn't end up contacting Kay for at least a few months. And in those few months, she actually started to take a breath and get her life back together and have fun. In November of 1993, a friend of hers named Tana suggested that she introduce Kay, Jason, and Mikkel to a Swedish friend of hers. She thought it would be nice for the foreign exchange student to have another Scandinavian person who was living in the United States to talk to. That's awesome. Yeah. So on the day after Thanksgiving 1993, Kay and the boys met 40-year-old Victor Gunnarsson. And Kay was, I think, just about 40 at this time, too. So they're the same age. Victor was a really good-looking guy. He had a thick head of dark hair, a trim figure, and the most startlingly blue eyes that Kay had ever seen. He also had a very impressive porn stash. He's got... A little bit of like an elfin Tom Selleck thing going on here. When you first said porn stash, I thought you meant like stash o porn. And I was <laughs> no, like, I how mean- did she find that out so quickly? And she was like, oh, they this is impressive. Jumped she's right in. Even, she's not even turned off by it. She's like, wow, what an impressive collection you have. It's really aligned with my kinks as well. Great. <laughs> this is great. I'm glad we got this out there on the first date with my children present. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, the old classic. I mean, I guess we don't even call them that anymore. The porn stashes, like the 1970s porn stashes. I mean, you did. So we do. I guess we do. So Victor was exceedingly charming. He had quite the reputation as a ladies man. Um, And after the ordeal that she had been through, Kay was like, this is great. This guy, even if he's not serious, is super fun. He's super cute. 
he was very charismatic. He was a language tutor. He could speak I some, have something like eight or nine languages, like absolutely fluently. So impressive. It was very impressive. So she was like, this is just what the doctor ordered. So after that first meeting where they were with the teenagers, they end up going out on a few more dates, like pretty much immediately. And there was even like some women that were like getting rebuffed and she knew it. Like they went to like a dance club, I guess, together. And this woman's like, why don't you call me anymore? It's been weeks since you called me. And Kay's like, hi, nice to meet you. I'm the reason he hasn't called you. (laughs) So awesome. Yeah, so they're really hitting it off. On December 3rd, Kay even took her mother and Victor out to dinner together so they could meet. Well, it seems like the dinner went well. And for some people, you need to wait for the third date. For others, you need to meet their mothers because this was the first night that this couple was intimate. They went back to Kay's house. Jason and Mikkel were actually out. And I think the boys were out with friends and Kay knew that. So she like locked the door. They got busy. They had a grand old time. And then uh, before the guys got home, of course, you know, made themselves presentable. And when the teenagers did come home later, they actually all hung out by a fire pit in the backyard. And it was really fun. Like her son was getting along and his friends so well with Victor. And they were all like joking around and having a good time until Jason said, mom, Monte Carlo. And at that point, they had all been laughing about something. And so Victor was like, oh, Monte Carlo. And he said, like, Monte Carlo in a funny voice. And everyone else was laughing except for Kay and Jason because Kay knew that Jason was implying that LC's Monte Carlo car was driving by. I figured it was either that or they, like, picked Monte Carlo as code word or something. Yeah. 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 So she knew at that point that LC was stalking them. And... She did not know whether he had seen Victor. So she was kind of just hoping at that point that his view had been obscured. So he didn't know that she was there with a guy because she didn't want trouble, obviously. And so Victor had had a friend from Sweden in the United States for like the last week. They had all gone out together before, too. And he had stayed up with him like the night before he left talking. So now Victor was pretty tired. It's like, 11-ish at night. By the time he ended up leaving, it was 11.30 and Kay remembered that Elsie was not outside. You know, it was all clear. And the two of them shared a kiss and Victor promised to call her the next day. She ended up going inside and then Jason came in about a half hour later around midnight. I would not let him stay outside with that creeper driving around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. I'd be like, you get your ass inside right now. I know, but he's like 15, and it's your own backyard. I think it would be hard to tell your 15-year-old son, like, you have to, like, come in before midnight when all your friends are out. We'll see. So he ends up coming in, and they turn in, but not before he tells Kay how much he really likes Victor and how it's, like, really nice to see her happy and moving on. And that was basically the same report that she got from her mom, who she talked to at some point as well, which is like, this guy's great. He might not be the forever guy. Who cares? All that matters is that you're smiling again. Yep. So that night, she went to sleep with something like hope blooming in her chest. Like she felt like this is good. I just got some. We are in a good place. This could be the beginning of something really beautiful. 
until the next day when he didn't call. So she's like, let's say go the whole day. She's like, I want to call him, but I don't want to be like weird because he said he was going to call. And then so the next day she doesn't hear from him again. And she's like, oh, screw it. I'm calling him. She leaves a voicemail on his answering machine. Uh-oh. Later on, she tried to call him one more time because they were supposed to go get her Christmas tree together. They had talked about it and she and Jason had decided they wanted to go. So she was like, I'll give him a call to see like, hey, last chance. You want to come with us? He didn't answer again. So the next day she was talking to her friend, Tana, who had introduced them. And she said, oh, you know what? I actually have some pictures that I'm supposed to drop off at Victor's. It's so weird he hasn't called you. Why don't you come along with me? And we can do it together under the guise of I'm supposed to drop off these pictures. I told him, you know, a couple days ago that I was going to do it on this day. And then you can see like what he's up to. But they get to his apartment and the door is ajar. Hmm. So nothing else seems to be amiss. The rest of the apartment isn't in perfect condition because he was definitely more of a classic bachelor than LC. But nothing's like, there's no signs of foul play. So they just kind of end up shutting the door and wedging the pictures in next to the door handle with a note that says, hey, we stopped by, give us a call when you can. And when they go back out to their car, they realize his car is in his spot. So it just seems really weird that his car's there, that his door was open, but nothing was amiss. And they don't really know how casual a guy he is as far as locking his door. They didn't know if that was out of character or not. So they're like, maybe he's just at a friend's house. Maybe he's even at a friend's house in the apartment complex. So that's why he just left his door open and walked over. They don't know, but it's strange. While Kay was wondering where the hell her new beau had gone, Elsie came raging back into her life, sending her love letters, begging her to go out with him again. So he had left her alone for all of these months. And all of a sudden, right when her new lover goes missing, he's coming back into her life. He's like calling her and being like, hey, I put a letter in your mailbox if you can go check. And then she's like, sure, I'll check it later. And then in two hours, he hand delivers it to her door. And he's like, why haven't you checked it yet? And she's like, I was doing stuff. Like, give me a second. These letters are published in this book in First Degree Rage. And I can't even, I usually try to read to you some of these romantic letters between these people that are in our stories. This letter is so long and so pathetic that there's not even anything of entertainment value or really important to the case. It's just stuff like, like this is like an excerpt and it's just all stuff like this. I want you to understand what I'm about to say. I love you very much. I want you and only you and no one else. I want to talk with you and say I love you to your face. I want to hold you in my arms and I want to kiss you and I want to make love to you. I want to put this relationship back on track and to show you who I care for is you and only you. I have not, nor do I intend to make love or hold anyone else until I can't hold you anymore. It's just a lot of like many, many, many pages of stuff like that. Okay. I'm glad that you've opted to not read it. We're going to skip that. Just imagine that, but for like 500 (laughs) pages. Uh, So Kay put him off gently because she was walking that tight rope of like being forceful, but being gentle, like being like, 
thank you. I appreciate this letter. It's very nice to know that you care about me. But again, I'm not in a place where I want to have a committed relationship. And no, I would not like to go out to dinner with you. But she's being nice about it. And at the same time, she's really like, kind of consumed with what's going on with Victor. Like, where is he? Is he with somebody else? She knew he was a ladies man. Like, did he just like hit it and quit it? Like, they seem to have a good thing going. Why would he just ghost her and disappear like that? So she's like thinking about that. Well, LC just keeps trying everything to get back into her life. And so a little while after he sent her this long, weepy letter. He called her and asked her if he could take her out to dinner that night. And she said, no, I, I don't feel like going out to eat. I'm actually already defrosted a chicken. I'm going to make dinner with the, for the boys here. And he's like, can I come over? And she's like, no, I don't think that's a very good idea. And he just kept calling her being like, are you sure? Are you sure you don't want to come out to dinner? And he like did this several times throughout the day. At the last time that he did this, it was already past seven o'clock. I think it was like seven, seven thirty, maybe. And she was cooking dinner and he called her and he's like, what are you doing right now? And she's like, I'm watching TV and cooking. I told you, I'll see that's what I'm doing tonight. And he's like, Oh, are the, are the boys home? And she's like, yes, they're home. They're going to eat dinner with me. And he's like, okay, well, what are you watching on TV? And she's like, Oh, like unsolved mysteries on lifetime. Okay. That's what I'm watching, which good choice. Okay. Good choice. Even though you don't love an unsolved. I don't love an unsolved, but I get it because that show was still so good. Yes. Yeah. Even if it was so frustrating. Yeah. So at that point, she's pleasantly surprised when he doesn't call her again for the rest of the night after hounding her all day. So she doesn't hear from him. And that relief was very short-lived because that was the night before the day she found her mother murdered. Oh, my God. Jesse, you know what that sound is? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Andy, Shopify has to be one of the companies that I know you love most. It is absolutely true. I have spent the last 10 years running small businesses, and Shopify has been such an important part of the journey. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. I've always been super impressed by how much Shopify simplifies some of the biggest challenges for small business owners and gives business owners from down the street to around the globe the tools they need to succeed. We're actually (laughs) switching our merch store to Shopify right now. I cannot wait to get that up and running. Other favorite things about Shopify include you're able to design your own website from scratch. They allow really reduced shipping rates for UPS so that you can get big company discounts for shipping. They allow you to track inventory. The pictures are great when they are posted online. Everything is awesome. You can use their multiple apps to shop your Instagram. The possibilities with Shopify are absolutely endless. With Shopify, you can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. You can synchronize your online and in-person sales and gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. And for our listeners, we're thrilled to share that you can go to shopify.com slash lovemurder for a free 14-day trial 
and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder. That's shopify.com slash lovemurder. Growing up as a latchkey kid in a small town in Maine, I always assumed I was safe. After all, unless it makes national news, murder isn't something people talk about around here. But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Murder, She Told is a true crime podcast featuring crime stories, unsolved murders of missing persons, and baffling cold cases from my home state of Maine, New England, and small towns across America. These are the crime stories your hometown doesn't want to talk about. The mysteries buried deep in the newspaper archives of local American history. These are the homicides you've probably never heard of before. Through detailed storytelling and connections with family, friends, and investigators closest to the case, Murder, She Told will hit home for any true crime fan, whether you're from Maine or from away. Visit MurderSheTold.com to suggest your hometown crime story. And subscribe now wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Kristen Seavey, and this is Murder, She Told. So going back to December 9th, 1993, the police noted that it appeared that Catherine had been cooking her dinner when she was surprised by a knock at the door. They believed that Catherine had known her killer based on the fact that the security system had been disarmed, which she especially always had it going when she was home alone. There was also no forced entry and the storm door had been unlocked. It had appeared that she let this person in and she had likely gone back to the stove to take her food off of the stove or to finish cooking it. And at that point, the person who had entered put two bullets into the back of her head execution style. It's insane. And she fell to the ground in her kitchen in front of the refrigerator. So on the day of Catherine's funeral, Kay received a call from Victor's Swedish friend, Daniel. And that was the one who had been in the United States whom she had met before. Okay. And he told her that he was very concerned because he hadn't heard from his friend, Victor, in nearly two weeks, which was not Victor's style. Yeah. Now, Kay didn't immediately put everything together because she was so exhausted. It was the day of her mother's funeral that she received this phone call. And so she just at that point, she didn't tell Daniel anything about her mom. She was just like, I haven't seen him either. I don't really know what's going on. Please contact me if you do get in contact with him. So after she recovered from the funeral, she did end up going to the police and Kay and Jason took polygraphs and they were completely cleared of any wrongdoing insofar as the murder of Catherine Miller. Oh, God. By now, Daniel had filed a missing persons report on Victor and they discovered through the report and through Kay's own testimony that she had been dating Victor. So the police already knew that Elsie was dangerous. And now there is a missing man who had just started dating the object of his affection. So they're very worried that something has happened to Victor as well at that point. And where is Elsie at this point? Is he... He at this point has 
retired from the police department and he was on disability for a bad back. That's what he said. He said he was like, it wasn't because of all of the infractions and being placed in administrative leave and suspensions. It was sounds like it was something where he was kind of forced out and he was saying that he retired and went on disability because of his bad back to save face. Yeah. So the police shared with her that they believed that Elsie was the one capable and likely to have killed her mother and that they feared for Victor's safety. It's like Kay was surprised and not surprised. It was the shock of hearing it plainly and knowing that it was her mother and he knew how much her mother meant to her, which was everything. They were constant companions and they were each other's rocks. And so that he would take that person away from her was the ultimate betrayal because he knew, he knew how much she mattered to her. But it also all made sense. It all clicked in finally for Kay. And she had this moment where she remembered being at the storm door and thinking it was so weird that it was unlocked. And she was like, my mom knew this person. My mom knew this person. And who could it be other than Elsie? And it was like all of a sudden she had stunning clarity, especially about the type of person her mother was, which is another person might say, ew, you're my daughter's ex-boyfriend and I don't like you. Get out of here. I'm not opening this door. Just get out of here. If you have something to say, call me on the phone. But Catherine being so caring and loving probably invited him in for dinner to talk. So at that point, the police put a 24-7 detail on Kay's home and work. So she was being followed by somebody and being protected at that point because they could not yet arrest Elsie. And in exchange, she was like, let me help you. Is there anything I can do? So she was a total badass, man. She is having them record all of their phone conversations and she is coming at him hard. She's like, I took a polygraph. Jason took a polygraph. Why the hell are you not taking a polygraph? Do you know what that makes me think? That you killed my mother. Say it, Elsie. You killed my mother. You did it, didn't you? And he's like backpedaling and he's like, no, I would never. What are you talking about? How could you say this? I just want to be there for you in your time of need. I wanted to be, I wanted to go to the funeral. I wanted to hold your hand, but your friend told me it wouldn't be appropriate. I'm trying to be there for you. I love you, Kay. And she's like, you killed my mother. You killed our dog. And I know you did. And when she started getting into the stuff about the dog and how she knew because she called the vet and she knew he didn't go to the vet, he hung up on her. What a little bitch. He is. And how awesome is Kay that this guy, like, that she's not, like, shrinking away from him. She is on the phone and she is like, I'm going to get you to confess because I'm not going to live in fear anymore. But unfortunately, he didn't confess. However, on January 6th, a dispatch officer named Rick Hilliard told the police that on the night of Victor's disappearance the same night that he had gone out with Kay and Catherine, as well as the night of the fire pit, that LC had called in a license plate number. Rick told the authorities that he had no idea at the time whose car LC was asking about. You know, that's not protocol. They don't have to tell dispatch why they need that information. And he only realized later that the information he gave him was for a man named Victor Gunnarsson. You gave him his address and everything? Name, address, the whole shebang. 
So when Rick came forward, of course, they asked him to call Elsie on a recorded line and discuss this. And Rick was kind of like, hey, dude, remember you made me run those plates and get that guy's information? And he's like, did you know that he was dating your ex and now he's disappeared? And he's like, yeah, I don't know that guy. Like, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know that Kay was even dating anyone. This is news to me, but like, I'm not surprised because she's like so fucked up. Oh, and Rick's like, you know that they know that you called this in. Like, it's on record. They have a tape of you calling that number in. So is there anything you want to tell me? And he's like, nope, I've got nothing to say. I don't know anything about it. And he's like, look, I could get in trouble for giving you that information. And he tries every which way. And basically, Elsie's just like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, well, why did you need that that number? And he's like, I don't even remember. It was so long ago. It wasn't. And he eventually hangs up. And so they're not really getting anywhere on these recorded phone calls, though they are trying. Yeah. Now, the very next day, the very next day after this recorded phone conversation, on January 7th, 1994, almost 100 miles away on a freezing cold mountaintop in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Deep Gap, North Carolina, a land surveyor made the grisly discovery of a nude 40-something-year-old man lying dead, partially covered by the snow. Oh, my God. That man was, of course, Victor Gunnarsson, and he had been killed only hours after leaving Kay's house. That is so sad. It's very sad, but then there's a very interesting twist coming up as well. So this is the part of the story where Detective Paula May, who's the author of the book I used, comes in. And she's also on The Forensic Files. So she came in. She was the first on the scene to see Victor in the snow. I mean, she talks about how the snow was very thick at that point. And she discovered Victor in the nude, having been shot twice, execution style in the head, just like Catherine. This style also can be the result of a law enforcement firearms training technique called the double tap. We've talked about this. Yes, we talked about it in the OC murders, which is how they discovered one of the killers because he had been through the specific weapons training, the same type of weapons training that Elsie had gone through. At the scene, they did not find Victor's clothes, but they did find a length of black electrical tape that had been used as a gag. And it appeared that he had been still wearing the gag when he was shot because there was blood, hair, and like what looked like a bullet hole through the tape. So they go through the missing person's database to try to compare this person to people who have been officially declared missing. And they immediately match him to Victor Gunnarsson. It's a clear match. And when they do that, this is the twist, they realize that Victor Gunnarsson was once arrested and remained basically the prime suspect in assassinating the former prime minister of Sweden in 1986. Excuse me? So, one night in 1986, the Swedish prime minister, Olaf Palm, and his wife gave their security detail the night off. Apparently, this guy was 
very popular. He was super one of the people. He often liked to engage with his public directly. He didn't like going out with bodyguards, even though he was the prime minister. So he had given them the night off. He went to a movie. He and his wife were leaving when they were approached and witnesses saw this by a dark-haired man who fit Victor's description. This man shook the prime minister's hand and it looked like they had a brief conversation. And then when the prime minister went to turn to leave, the mystery assassin took out a gun and shot him twice in the back. One bullet severed his spinal column while the other tore through his aorta and ended up also grazing his wife. Now, Victor was a right-wing extremist who had been in a nearby bar before the shooting, and he had been loudly complaining about the prime minister. And people knew him, and he had complained several times about this in public ways. And it appeared that he had left the bar very shortly before the assassination occurred. Got it. Okay. However, when Olaf's widow, nor any of the other eyewitnesses, could pick Victor out of a lineup, they had to let him go. Whoa. Yeah. And it's it's still, we'll get into the aftermath of this assassination. It has been kind of technically solved, at least from what Swedish prosecutors have said. But there's a big feeling in Sweden that it is technically not solved and that the person they say did it may not have. So this is still kind of an unsolved situation. We'll talk right at the end. But unfortunately for Victor, trial by media had already determined that he was guilty. I mean, his picture was released in the media. People knew that he was the accused assassin. And because this prime minister had been popular, he became, I mean, even if this minister hadn't been popular, he became a total pariah in Sweden. He was the most hated man in Sweden. People would come up to him on the street and scream murderer in his face. So... At that point, living in Sweden was out for Victor because there was no way, nowhere he could escape this. So he ended up moving abroad. He lived in South America for a while and then eventually moved to North Carolina where he very bizarrely met an altogether different violent fate. So the detectives find out first and foremost that he was potentially the assassin of the prime minister of Sweden only a handful of years earlier. And they initially think, of course, that this is some sort of retaliatory kill, that somebody from Sweden has managed to hunt him down and finally kill him for killing the prime minister. So they start networking with Sweden to be like, is there anyone who would want him dead? Is there any new information out about the assassination that would lead to somebody trying to chase down Victor Gunnarsson. And no matter what they did, they could not come up with any feasible link between the assassination and Victor's murder. There was even a conspiracy theory that the CIA had hired Victor to kill the PM and then they did away with him years later to cover their tracks. 
Well, soon Detective May would come to the ironic conclusion that it was not international intrigue and assassination that killed Victor, but a good old run-of-the-mill homegrown love triangle. Yes, a jealous, controlling nightmare. Isn't that crazy? And they had barely begun dating. Barely. After networking with the Salisbury PD, Detective May discovered that they already had a suspect for Victor's disappearance and that that man was one of their own. Once the authorities discovered Victor's body, it was becoming easy to piece together what happened. At Victor's autopsy, potato skins were discovered in his digestive system that suggested he'd been killed only a few hours after that meal. Jesus. Kay confirmed that Victor had had a baked potato at that dinner date with her mother. It seemed likely that after Elsie's attempts at drawing Kay back to him using sympathy, the claims of his mother's cancer, shared grief, the death of their dog, which he absolutely caused. When all of that failed, when the stalking and the letters and the showing up at her house failed, he decided to take more drastic measures. When he was stalking Kay and saw Victor's car, he then called dispatch, got Victor's information, and either went immediately to Victor's house to lay in wait, or he got himself some materials, more likely, and then later showed up at Victor's after Victor was already home. Getting Victor out of the house would have been as simple as Elsie showing up in his police uniform and flashing his badge. He didn't know Elsie from a hole in the wall. And if there was a police officer knocking on your door saying, open up, it's the police, I'm doing a something check, you would open the door. At that point, Elsie could have pushed his way into the home. He has a gun. He gags Victor with some electrical tape that he brought. And then he could march him to his car and force Victor into the trunk. A search of Elsie's car would later confirm this horrific theory as scratches were found in the trunk, as if he had been like scratching. And even though Elsie had taken the vehicle to a car wash and he had paid for this super deluxe cleaning package and had stood over the technicians as they vacuumed, making sure that they got every little piece out of this car, eventually the police were able to lift 16 strands of hair from the mat in the trunk to Victor. He didn't do a good job micromanaging the cleaning. No, it also, it's really sad because this also confirmed their theory that he was alive when he was in the trunk because the type of hair was called telogen or telogenic hair, which means it's the type of hair that is not pulled out by the root. It's the hair that like if you're brushing your hair or if it snags on something, it kind of naturally just comes out. And so it seemed likely why it was so embedded in the mat and was because he was struggling. He was trying to move his head and he was rubbing the back of his head into the mat. So it was getting in enmeshed deep down into the mat. Yeah. Yeah. And they see, said that that type of hair and that type of embedding enmeshment would only seem likely if he was still alive. It wouldn't have occurred the same way had he been passed away. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Oh, God. 
That's so scary. I just can't think of you're having a nice night. You're having a good time. And all of a sudden a cop shows up at your door. And then the next thing you know, you're in a trunk and you have no idea why. It's a true living nightmare. So authorities also found a map of North Carolina in Elsie's apartment. And they believed that he likely used this map so he didn't have to look anything up. This is still like the MapQuest era. So it's not like he did that, but it seems likely he used this map to figure out where he was going, where he was going to dump the body. They also found in his home an alarming number of unhinged notes to Kay that were apparently never sent and a book. Yeah, get this book too. The book was called Codependent No More, How to Stop Controlling Others and Start Caring for Yourself. I think he maybe needed to get his money back on that one. So they figured at this point, using this map of North Carolina, he discovered a place in the mountains that he could pull over easily and then march Victor into the woods at gunpoint, force him to strip off his clothes. And that would be because Elsie, as a police officer, would know that very often the garments could have contained Elsie's DNA. So he asked him to take off the clothes, or at least that's why they think he did it. And then he shot Victor twice in the head with a twenty-two. Later, ballistics experts would be able to confirm that the twenty-two bullet that was shot into Jason's bedroom was shot from the same gun as the one that killed Victor. Whoa. So you would have killed him too. The cops believed that he took the electrical tape gag off of Victor after he murdered him and had planned to remove it along with all of his clothes and likely probably some hand restraints. But it was somehow left behind, which was a lucky thing, too, because investigators did end up discovering electrical tape holding together a portion of the back of Elsie's dryer. Like it was like kind of like the exhaust pipe thing. He had used electrical tape to reconnect the parts. And they were able to forensically match the tape found at the crime scene with the tape that was on the back of his dryer. It was definitely from the same role. Wow. That's why this one's on forensic files, man. There is a lot of forensic evidence on this one. Well, the day after Elsie killed Victor, he began to once again try to woo Kay. Remember, he hadn't been bothering her for months. And then all of a sudden, the day after Victor goes missing, bingo, bango, he's back in her life. And this just shows you that he was definitely a psychopath. And we've talked about how psychopaths can be nonviolent, non-murderous people for sure. I think it's like having some sort of tendency towards psychopathy and then going through horrific abuse is what makes a psychopathic killer. So if you're just a run-of-the-mill psychopath, you probably just become like a CEO or something. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> not a doctor, guys, and not a psychologist. Just going from the gut here. But yeah, so I think that in his like psychopathic mind, he's like, I want to be with Kay if I get rid of all of the obstacles in the way and on a double-edged sword make Kay vulnerable and alone, then I will get what I want, which is a relationship with Kay. Yep. But yeah, it's not going to work. It didn't work when he eliminated her boyfriend. She had no inclination to be with him, no matter what he did. And when she continued to put space, that was when he decided that he needed to up the ante and also murder her mother. 
Now, it was that day that he kept calling her over and over again until that last call. And based on the autopsy, they believe that Catherine Miller died very shortly after that phone call. It was that he hung up and he went over. He was making sure that she was not going to be spending time with her mother or at her mother's. He was making sure that Jason wasn't going over to his grandmother's. And later on, when the police interrogate him about what he was doing that night, his alibi was that he was home watching TV. When they asked him what he had been watching, do you know what he said? Unsolved Mysteries. Bingo. Yeah. He said, I was watching Unsolved Mysteries on the Lifetime channel. Unbelievable. (sighs) Unbelievable. Furthermore, witnesses canvassed recalled seeing a car matching Elsie's car's description in the neighborhood at the time of the shooting. Elsie's DNA was also found in Catherine's home, but seeing as he had been an invited guest in previous months, that one wasn't so helpful. So prosecutors determined that there was more than enough physical evidence to charge LC with Victor's murder, and they did so on October 11th, 1997. Now, you guys, if you're interested in the investigation, the interrogation, what happened when Detective May arrested LC, I would recommend that you pick up the book. It is very thorough. It is a 534-page book. So it gives you every nitty-gritty detail on this investigation, every interview with ex-girlfriends and family members and everything you could possibly want. So definitely check it out because I'm going to fast forward to the trial here. Wait, tell us one crazy detail from the book. Oh, it was more just like that he was such a little bitch. Like, he wouldn't talk to the other. There was, like, um an agent that was with, I think, like, you know, the, not FBI, but another, like, national something. And there was, like, some agent he wouldn't look at or talk to. And then he finally said he was only going to talk to Detective May. But then when she, like, wasn't on his side and he couldn't manipulate her, he told everyone that she was a bitch and he wouldn't talk to or look at her. Like, it was just all this petulant behavior over and over again. And then he, like, hoodwinked this poor woman who had worked at the police department to send him some cigarettes in a magazine. So she was sending him contraband, and they had to figure out who was helping him do that. And he had, like, somehow convinced this woman and, like, gotten his spell over her to do that. It's like, it's... All sorts of stuff like that. All sorts of minutia. But yeah, so he's he's in jail. He was denied bail, thank goodness, because he is definitely a danger to Kay and Jason and some other people and probably the detectives. So while he was awaiting trial, the police continued to work the case. They were able to locate the man who had actually made the threatening phone calls to Kay and Jason. Now, those threatening phone calls hadn't been Elsie's voice. Obviously, Kay would have recognized them. And that was another reason why she was inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt because she knew the voice on the phone wasn't his. It was an ex-con named Rex Keller who had been put up to it by Elsie, who was a friend of his. Rex's girlfriend, Cher, positively identified Rex's voice on the voicemail recording and told police that she had reluctantly allowed LC to borrow her car on a few occasions so he could drive by Kay's house without her recognizing the car he was in. So she also said that she didn't know, like, that he was stalking her, that it was like, that he came up with some 
reason why he had to drive by her house. And it was like part of a police investigation or something. And she only realized later what he was using her car for. Yeah. And then when Rex was questioned, he did end up admitting to making the phone calls and he made a deal to testify against Elsie in court to avoid any charges relating to the threatening messages. Furthermore, he told Detective May that Elsie had wanted him to do much worse to Kay and Jason. He had asked him to, quote, bushwhack Kay and Jason. When Detective May was like, what the hell is bushwhack? Rex said, you know, bushwhack them. You know, you hide and then you jump them and you beat them up. I flat out told him no. But then he said he'd give me $500 cash and a thirty-eight. Rex said he decided to take the money and the gun, but not actively go through with it. The detectives were able to confirm through bank records that in December, when they had this conversation, Elsie did withdraw $600 cash, of which he gave $500 to Rex. Rex said, though, that he didn't have the 38 Colt revolver for long. He said only a little while later, Elsie came back and was pissed that he hadn't attacked Kay and Jason. He demanded his gun back and said, I ought to just go kill the bitch myself. Now, of course, Rex assumed this was Kay, but he was spooked when only a few days later, Catherine Miller was murdered with a 38. Unfortunately, the police were never able to recover the 38 or the 22 used in the murders. However, they were able to find the pawn shop where Elsie had purchased the guns, and the owner was able to not only provide receipts for the weapons, but also pick Elsie out of a photo lineup. In the search of Elsie's home, all of his guns were accounted for except for the 38 and the 22. Busted. So let's find out how the trial went down when it gets started on Friday, June 27th, 1997. The bad news was that the prosecution was blocked from letting Elsie's ex-partners testify to his history of abuse and stalking. But they were allowed to bring in evidence about Catherine Miller's murder, which is huge. If you'd rather have one than the other, you definitely want to get Catherine Miller's murder in there, which is Really interesting because we've covered so many other cases where they decide that's too prejudicial. Even recently, we've covered a case where uh, some of the other offenses weren't allowed to come in, but this was not the case in this trial. The prosecution contended that Elsie Underwood had jealously sought to remove all obstacles to winning back his relationship with Kay and would use any means necessary— lying, violence, sympathy, alienation, love letters, and begging. And when all of those failed to work, he turned to murder. The defense argued that it was physically impossible for Elsie to have managed to kill Victor or force him out of the house or carry his body to either the trunk or dump him in the woods because he had a bad back. Oh, no, he's going with the bad back excuse? He is. And they do have documentation that he has a bad back. He was out on disability when he was arrested. However, if you follow the prosecution's theory of what happened, he wouldn't have ever had to lift no. Victor at all. If he just forced him at gunpoint to do things, then he would have never had to lift a finger. I guess lift a hand with a gun in it. That's about all he had to do. 
So various doctors, medical examiners, and scientists testified to the forensic evidence, the typewriter that proved LC had been behind the threatening letters, the potato in Victor's belly that showed he had been killed the same evening that he had had dinner with Kay and Catherine, as well as the electrical tape that matched one that was found in LC's home. And I think most tellingly, Victor's hair being found in LC's trunk. Yes. Yes. What other reason would that there be for that to be there? Giving him a ride? Yeah, in the trunk. Yeah, the pawn shop owner testified, as did Rex and his girlfriend Cher, and the dispatcher Rick as well. Kay and Jason took the stand themselves to speak personally about their terrifying harassment, which I think is very strong emotionally on both of their parts. They have to be present testifying in front of that monster in the same room as the man who stole the life of their mother, their grandmother, in Kay's case, her boyfriend that she just started seeing and had nearly tried to kill her only child and terrorize them for months. I mean, to have to testify in front of him would be terrifying. The defense presented absolutely no witnesses at all, which was interesting. The detective May talks about it in her book, and she says that she asked the prosecution why they would do that. And they said that perhaps they felt like they were just going to go for the reasonable doubt angle and try to prove that the state hadn't proved their case through their, you know, opening and closing statements. So they didn't feel like they had to. Let's see how that goes for them. The trial concluded, the judge issued instructions, and the jury was let out to deliberate at 3.30 p.m. At 4.30 p.m., only one hour later, they said that they had a verdict. Lamont Claxton Underwood was found guilty of first-degree kidnapping and first-degree murder. Thank goodness. Yeah, they later talked to author and detective Paula May and told her that they actually came to the verdict within the first five minutes. They went into the room, they sat down, they reviewed the information, the instructions. And then they said, well, you know, why don't we just see where we're standing? Let's have one vote quickly first and just see where we're going to have to debate. And they all immediately said guilty. So they're like, everyone feel good about that? And like one person's like, I need a bathroom break. And then they had to like do the paperwork. And that is why it took an hour. Wow, that's amazing. Amazing. So in sentencing, the prosecution did push for the death penalty. They felt that it was warranted given that Victor's murder had been especially heinous, atrocious, and cruel. It had been 24 degrees outside on the night that he had been kidnapped. And given how big his frame was and how uncomfortable and terrifying that trip in the trunk would have been, they felt that it qualified as those things. The defense countered with mitigating factors like how absolutely god-awful Elsie's childhood had been. And in the end, he was sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole eventually and an additional 40 years for kidnapping. So this was a huge slap in the face to Detective May because she said what people don't get, especially about the American justice system is that sometimes people say they get a life sentence, but it's not really a life sentence. We've talked about this in the past. It could be anywhere from 20 to 40 years. 
So there's that plus the 40 years for the kidnapping and he's not exactly a spring chicken. So, you know, this was a hard pill to swallow because it it seems as though he was still, while he was in prison, trying to concoct ways to get revenge on Kay and Jason and all of the authorities that had helped put him away. So they really wish that he had been like, given the death penalty, even if he didn't get killed, just because that would have ensured that he would have stayed behind bars. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, there was a huge fear there. But thankfully for Kay and Jason's safety, he did never make it out of jail, despite his appeals and any sort of parole situation. He passed away in prison in 2018 at the age of 67. It said that his death was of natural causes. I do not know any more than that. He spent 21 years in prison. He was never officially charged with Catherine Miller's murder, and he maintained his innocence until the bitter end. Detective May published a second book called Raging On about the resolution of the case and Elsie's plotting of revenge while in jail. Now, I didn't get a chance to read this one because... The first one was so lengthy. But if you are interested and you read the first one, definitely let me know what you think of the second one, the follow-up. One caveat, there's a lot of Christianity in these books for a true crime book. Detective May is a very proud Christian. She puts Bible verses at the beginning of every chapter. So if you are a true crime-loving Christian, this might be the book for you. That is not your cup of tea. You heard it here on our podcast, and maybe that's good enough. (laughs) So the murder of Prime Minister Olaf Palm remains relatively unsolved to this day. There was a conviction shortly after they freed Victor, but that was later overturned for lack of evidence. And in 2020, Swedish prosecutors stated publicly that the assassin had been a man named Stig Engstrom, who had been one of the 20 eyewitnesses at the scene and who matched the physical description of the assassin. However, Stig Enstrom had killed himself in 2000, so there was no way to prosecute him, get a confession, prove this in any capacity. According to a public opinion poll by Svenska Dagbladet, Only 19% of the Swedes who took the poll believed that Engstrom was the killer, while the majority stated that they did not think that the killer had been found. They were not sure, or they could not say definitively that Stig Engstrom was the assassin. So short of DNA evidence, I'm always a little skeptical when they're like, you know, a major government is like, it was the dead guy. Let's Let's say it was that guy who uh, can't speak up for him himself. <laughs> That's the one. Okay, case closed. Stop bothering us now. So who knows? Maybe the real assassin did meet his end in the snowy mountains of North Carolina. Miserable. I mean, if he did do it, man, did he get some karma fairy justice. If he did not... That man truly is a very unlucky man. Yes. Very unlucky. So I don't know. It is kind of funny, though, because one of the details from the book, Andy, you asked me earlier, was that at his funeral, a bunch of women figured out that they had all slept with him and they were like laughing about it. They're like, wait, you slept with him too? I slept with him. Like, 
all of his female friends had slept with him at one point. So funny. The woman that introduced him to Kay had slept with him. So So funny. funny. So he was quite the charmer and hopefully not an assassin. Piercing blue eyes. He does have very, very piercing blue eyes. You will see it in the picture. In conclusion, a porn stash or even a stash of porn if you're with the right person is always in style. (laughs) Always. And next time I see a Monte Carlo driving by, I'm definitely going to be sus. Definitely is not going to just, you know, I'm not going to be like, oh, that's a Monte Carlo. I'm going to be like, oh, it's a Monte Carlo. Definitely sus. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up assassinated. Love you guys so much. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. 